From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While it's getting late in the spring calendar, this past week saw a flurry of action in Gator athletics, with some teams achieving new season highs. At the same time, others saw their postseason runs come to crushing ends. And that doesn't even account for some major announcements off the court that drastically changed basketball's offseason. On today's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter to discuss the bevy of basketball news, the end of the NCAA roads for gymnastics and volleyball, baseball streaking behavior, softball turning the tide in Tuscaloosa, and Oscar-winning movies that left a mark in the PAT. Then, men's tennis coach Brian Shelton joins us to share his personal journey and how it ultimately led him to elevate the UF program to new heights. But first, just as I connected with Chris and Scott for this week's conversation on Wednesday, Keontae Johnson shook the foundation of Gator Twitter by announcing his intention to return to the court wearing the orange and blue. So that was the clear and obvious place to start this week's roundtable. His goal was always to play again. So the fact that he wants to play again isn't so much of a surprise, but um, he ain't allowed to do anything. Uh, You know, there's tests and there's medical clearances, uh, and steps that have to be taken along the way before he can get on the, the, the court and even run half a suicide. So um, is, he's allowed to do stationary shooting. And it, it's not a whole lot more advanced than it was. But I do think that maybe a couple of weeks ago, he was thinking about uh, dipping his toe and seeing and going through the draft process and going in front of scouts, uh, not being able to do anything, but but hearing maybe some feedback from them, and maybe you know, it's, it sounds to me like he's kind of changed, changed his tune on that and said, I'm going to concentrate on if I'm going to show them I can play, this is the, maybe this is the best place for me to show them to play. Come back uh, where he was the preseason SEC player of the year. And remember, this is a guy who hasn't, hasn't done anything since December. So his, in addition to what's going on with him medically and his heart situation, there's the conditioning element. You know, he hasn't been able to run. He hasn't been able to lift. So, I mean, those he'll have a lot of catching up to do. Um, but the fact that he, you know, he seems to have some clarity now with, with what he wants and what his goals are. And it sounds like the, uh, these goals in, that could very well involve the Gators. That's, a, that's an encouraging thing. I mean, he, he may have been out of sight, but he really wasn't out of sight because he was always on the sidelines. But Keontae Johnson was never out of the minds of this basketball team or this basketball program. Um, I think it, in some ways it, he was with the fans who seemed to forget that they lost uh, you know, the best player on the team early on in the season. But um, in the NFL, about Alex Smith just retired this week. Yeah. And he was the comeback player of the year. I would think if he was able to, return and play for Florida, Keontae Johnson's comeback uh, would garner the kind of uh, headlines that uh, that Alex Smith did. So this is, I mean, potentially huge news in terms of who's going to be on the court next year. In terms of the people on the sideline, uh, we had another change to that 
equation this week with the news that, that Darius Nichols is leaving for a head coaching job, just like Jordan Mincy did. So, uh, Chris, tell us about the, the next stop here for, for Darius Nichols. Darius Nichols, this is a this is a great fit for him. He was named uh, Wednesday the head coach at Radford uh, University, and and it's great for him because he grew up in Radford. So you're talking about a guy who walked out his front door to get his newspaper, assuming there were newspapers at the time. I guess I won that long ago, so maybe there weren't. He walked out his front door, and he's a couple miles away from this place where he's now going to be um, a first time head coach. And um, this uh, Darius is is. A very, very, he's very, very ready for this for this jump. This is a guy who was uh, a, a pretty well well recruited player out of that out of that area. He could have gone to places like Clemson, to Virginia Tech, Maryland was in the mix, and he he ended up going to West Virginia, where he played for John Beeline and Bob Huggins. So he's got the pedigree from playing for those two guys. He was on a Sweet Sixteen team. He was a very, very accomplished college player who became a very accomplished assistant coach at both Wofford, where he was there with um, Mike Young, who's not a head coach of Virginia Tech. So he learned that style, and he's been here with Mike White, obviously, the last six years. He's been a top-notch recruiter. He's been the person who coaches their defense. Um, he's just he's ready, and uh, he's he really relates well to players. And I'm really, really happy for him. I think uh, his name has been thrown around some uh, earlier in the offseason about about some jobs. I'm just glad this this is a really good one for him because again, it's in it's 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 right there in the backyard where he grew up. And you know, I, all, all the time when a guy when an assistant coach leaves a high major program, it's always going to be a stepping stone. And and for him, I imagine this was some guys think. Well, I mean, like Jordan Mincy. A lot of these coaches, they got to take pay cuts to go to these jobs, okay? Yeah. Because they're well paid at these power conference uh, positions. Um, Jordan Mincy goes to Jacksonville. He's got his foot in the door. He's a D one coach now. Darius Nichols gets to go uh, to a place where his family, where his mom and dad still live, I believe, and be a head coach in a, in a, in the very town where he grew up. So good for him. On the player front, you know, there's a lot of guys that were coming in. We were waiting on paperwork. We now have it. Um, tell us about the, these new pieces, which, in, you know, depending on who you ask, in some cases um, are possibly upgrades on the guys that they're replacing, essentially. Well, I mean, if you, in terms of, of productivity, I mean, it's not even a conversation. People can go to uh, FloridaGators.com. And before I get into the players individually, uh, Florida is losing, obviously, Noah Locke. He's going to Louisville. They're losing Omar Payne. He's going to Illinois. Good for them. They landed at really, really good places. They they felt they needed to go somewhere go somewhere else and get something that they didn't believe that they were getting here. Quest Glover is going to Sanford. Osai Osipo followed uh, Jordan Mincy to Jacksonville. Now, I just mentioned those four guys. Um, they're taking with them eight seasons of experience, 227 games total among them, 94 starts among them. Uh, 4,144 minutes among them, uh, 1,323 points, 462 rebounds. Enter, okay, Brandon McKissick from Kansas City, Missouri, Flandris Fleming, I love the name, by the way, Fla- <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, but I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Flandris Fleming from uh, Charleston Southern, Myron Jones from Penn State, and C.J. Felder from Boston College. Um, these guys have 13 seasons combined. They played in 338 games versus the 227. They have 255 starts 
uh, between them as opposed to those 94 I mentioned. They have 9,128 minutes, more than twice as much as those other guys. They've got 1,355 rebounds, almost three times as many as those players. Wow. So these are – these are uh, proven commodities and people say, well, look where they're coming from. Okay, let's look where they're coming from. Myron Jones came from Penn State. Okay, he averaged uh, more than 14 points a game in the Big Ten the last two seasons. C.J. Felder claimed is coming from Boston College. I'd say he's a combo kind of three, four, a rebounding kind of energy uh, front court kind of player who was second in the league last year in block shots to seven foot one Jay Huff of Virginia. So uh, I, I want to say he was about 10 points and six rebounds a game. Uh, I said Myron Jones, 14 points the last two seasons. Uh, and you got Brandon McKissick, who was 17.2 points this season and the player of the year in the Summit, Con- Summit League, excuse me. And, and I mentioned Flanders Fleming at Charleston Southern. This guy scored 1,500 points over his career, led the uh, Big South in scoring at 20.2 points a game, and was also the defensive player of the year there. Uh, so you're getting half, half this, these incoming guys were, were defensive players of the years in their respective leagues. Now I got people on Twitter saying, yeah, but these guys are coming. Look where they're coming from. Okay, let's look where they're coming <laughs> from. I already mentioned a Big Ten and ACC guy. Brandon McKissick, Landis Fleming. Okay, let's. We, you want to play that game? Let's play it. Kansas City, Missouri, or excuse me, Kansas, uh, Missouri, Kansas City, and uh, Charleston Southern. Well, Canyon Barry came from College of Charleston, mm-hmm. and Igor Kulichov uh, came from Rice. Those are both considered mid-major players, and they came in as fifth-year seniors. I think these guys are going to be okay transition-wise. Now, the the next step, of course, that we won't talk about that probably for a few months uh, in terms of. Uh, with any kind of details, how are these guys who are used to being dudes, okay? Mm-hmm. High productivity, high usage, volume shooters in a lot of cases. How are they going to mesh coming to a new place chemistry-wise? That's always the question. Uh, everybody loves each other when this, when they first get here and they start to become team and everything, but it, everything hits the fan when we start to decide who's going to play minutes. None of these guys are going to play the minutes, that they played at the previous stops. How are they going to handle that? The coaches, I'm sure, have addressed this with them uh, before, well before they even got here. Some of these guys got to come off the bench because they already got Daruji. They already got. They already. They already have uh, Appleby. I'm going to assume Colin Castleton is is coming back. Um, there's already guys that are here that are, that were productive players on an NCAA tournament team. So um, on on paper, these this is a very experienced group next year. And when you think about it, uh, this past year, Florida was tenth, I think, in terms of uh, KenPom.com metrics in terms of experience. Just a year ago, they were last in the SEC, and I think fifth from the bottom in the country in mm. terms of experience. They've completely flipped that switch now. This is going to be a, a team that has a lot of games and a lot of veteran experience under its belt. A lot of new faces coming in, no question, and there's going to be more new faces uh, when two coaches come in to uh, to replace Darius Nichols and Jordan Mincy. So we'll certainly be talking about those uh, when they are revealed. I want to turn our attention now to a couple of sports, Scott, that had the end of their seasons in this past week. Both of them we talked about on last week's show, volleyball and gymnastics. Let's start with gymnastics. Um, you know, We noted they'd been the number one team all season long. So much of winning a championship, especially in that sport, though, it's all about momentum and peaking at the right time. And, and through a combination of 
you know, bad luck and injuries. Unfortunately, the the number one seed Florida that made it to the the final four, if you will, was not the same Florida that was dominating back in in February and March, and ultimately we're not able to to come out on top there. Yeah, Adam, they just they ran into some injuries at bad times. Obviously, what they did out in Fort Worth at the finals, you know, starting off on Bean uh, with those two falls, you knew that. I mean, it was over before it really started for them. And then as you watch that meet continue, those other three teams there, they were really what you just spoke about. You could tell they were kind of peaking at the right time, whereas the Gators had almost dropped back because, you know, when you start having injuries, I mean, it disrupts your lineup and obviously it disrupts the performances uh, of the athletes. I mean, they were what you call grinding, grinding through it, but they weren't in their mid-season form, most of the regular season, you know, the way they performed, you you looked at that team and you thought, wow, this is the year they're going to finally finally win that national title again. And and things were running smooth until the postseason started. And, uh, you know, Trinity Thomas has that unfortunate fall where she really hurt both ankles. And I think she went about 50 days, I was told, between doing her full all-around exercises wow. you know routines and then she, she was able to go at the nationals but you know she it wasn't the same trendy thomas that that we'd seen earlier in the year you know they lost sydney johnson sharp to an achilles tendon uh achilles hill uh injury so that was a uh, that was an issue so again adam it was one of those deals where uh, did they have the talent to win certainly uh, but a lot of things have to come together you got to be healthy and you have to be uh, on point in your performances. And, and I don't think the Gators had either one of those. Still a great season. You know, you look at it, finished fourth in the nation. And even to get there, I was wondering, you know, earlier in the postseason if if they were going to be able to pull it together even to even get to the finals. And they did. They were the only SEC team that made the final four. And you saw Michigan win their first national title. Then Utah and Oklahoma, uh, I think, second and third. And then Florida was fourth. So, uh, you know, it's an opportunity for Jeannie Rowland to, uh, you know, come back, regroup. Trendy Thomas is back. I mean, she she was named uh, one of the gymnastics publications gymnast of the year this week. They're going to be very talented again, like a freshman like Ellie Lazaro. She's only going to get better. They get healthy. Uh, they got the lineup again. Naya Reed's there. So uh, you're just going to look at this team again. Can they Can they do it from start to finish like we saw them do those three back-to-back-to-back years when they did win it. Uh, But that's what it takes. And unfortunately, it didn't work out this year for them. In terms of volleyball, certainly no shame in in going out to the number one team in the NCAA tournament. They they got passed to Ohio State. So I know a lot of fans, Gator Twitter, loved the idea that Florida ended Ohio (laughs) State's season in another sport. Um, And then, you know, they were matched up in the Elite Eight of volleyball uh, with the Wisconsin team that was undefeated. And Boy, they, they took him to the brink. They had him in the fifth set, and they, they I think it was 9-6 at best, and it looked like they might be on their way to, to closing out and pulling the upset. And then Wisconsin just roared back and, and ended up taking the fifth set. So very, very close to that final four for Mary Wise and, and volleyball, but just not quite enough to get over the top. Yeah, I mean, I think they played their best match of the whole season against Wisconsin. Uh, you know, they were underdogs in that one. Wisconsin, I think, had only lost four sets all year. Wow. Uh, going, going into that match. And, of course, the Gators uh, forced it to five sets. And it looked really good there when they were up uh, late. 
but I think Wisconsin showed why uh, they're kind of in, I think, in a lot of people's eyes, a favorite uh, to win it all this week. And for the Gators, it was it, this has just been such a weird volleyball season, Adam. I mean, here, to, here we are in what mid late April talking about volleyball. Usually the finals are done in December. Right. Uh, Mary Weiss, uh, she had a tweet this week where, you know, a picture of the team uh, saying, you know, they asked more of this team and for a longer period of time than any other uh, volleyball team in school history. That's true. I mean, they played half their season in the fall, and then they took, I think, two months off, and they came back and finished up in the spring. So uh, I think if you look at all the sports in college athletics, volleyball is one that was really altered by uh, the COVID pandemic. And yet, you know, what we're accustomed to seeing the Gators do is being a player in the in the national picture. And that that they were, again, in Mary Wise's 30th season. Uh, so they're also kind of similar to gymnastics. You know, they're losing uh, a couple of key players, but they're, they some of their, their big-time players, Thayer Hall, uh, Marley Monterey, Tierra Caesar, these are these are players that will be coming back uh, with eligibility left next year. So there's no reason that this team, I think, can maybe – what we saw against Wisconsin, I think that really even boosted expectations next year because you knew they were going to be good, but that, that showed people a lot. And, uh, again, they, they came up short out in the Omaha bubble, as they like to say, but hopefully next year they won't be playing in a bubble and uh, – you know, maybe they can get past that point. Yeah, and, and talking to Mary Wise uh, in the post-game uh, Zoom, to Scott's point, this was the best match they played all season. The offense in the in the second and fourth set uh, really took it to an took it to another level against a really really good defensive team. I think Wisconsin ended up uh, hitting a, a season low percentage. And like Scott said, Scott said they lost four uh, sets all year. They actually only lost three. And so, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, and and so and, and you know, Florida, of course. Uh, beat him in two sets in that in that one match. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, like Scott said, they started way back last summer and started prepping. Whereas Wisconsin, Wisconsin was part of a, a, a Big Ted that didn't start playing until January. Hmm. So in essence, Florida played two seasons. They played the fall season. They played the spring season. And it was, in essence, together a season like no other. And yet in a lot of ways, it, it, it ended up in the same place. Florida always gets deep in, in this tournament, it seems like. This this one just had a feeling about it that something something was going to happen that was a, that was a little different, especially the way they were playing against this Wisconsin team. But as Mary Wise said, any other team, but not this team on this night. Scott, we talked last week about the about baseball's walk off win over FSU, maybe giving them a little bit of momentum, uh, and that seems to be the case. Combined with, as you noted, a schedule that was getting a little bit easier as it went along, and as a result baseball has got a little run going right now and then starting to feel better about themselves as are the fans as well. Yeah. You know, they went over to Jacksonville and uh, went on the road Tuesday night. Uh, and Adam, that was their six in a row, six win in a row, a streak that started with that Sunday comeback win up at Tennessee a uh, week before last. So, you know, you couple that win at Tennessee and then with the way they won against FSU and you could just tell the confidence of the team, it kind of turned around, and I think it's showing up on the field. I think the most impressive thing I saw from them in the weekend sweep of Missouri was, you know, they got down six to nothing in that first game of a doubleheader on Saturday, and they came back to win eight to six. So they're hitting the ball really well right now. They've got a, you know, they strung together some uh, consecutive games with double uh, figure hits, and 
you know, you're getting the pitching. Uh, Jack left, which uh, really had a great outing as we talked last week against FSU. And then over the weekend, you had Hunter Barco having a, a solid game in the second game of a doubleheader. Uh, so if if Barco, Mace, Leftwich, Milchin, that regular crew can do what they're doing, and you got Aliman in such a important role role right now. Uh, if those guys can continue to do it, and and the lineup can hit like like we've seen in the last uh, two weeks, then you're talking about I think Adam this the Florida team that a lot of people expected from day one. Uh, and then we'll we'll really they go up to Auburn this weekend. Uh, it's another series that on paper they should win. Auburn's uh, not really in the upper half of the SEC this year. And then we really get to see one of the biggest uh, series of this, the biggest regular season series of the, the season for the Gators when, when Vanderbilt comes to town. And, and if they're still playing well uh, going into that matchup, that, that's going to that's gonna be a fun weekend series to see where the SEC East is at at that point. So baseball is on a nice run. Softball, uh, they've been they've been in pretty good shape all season long, Chris. But last week, you talk about a roadblock. UCF comes into Gainesville and just clobbers Florida. Uh, and you think, okay, well, how do you go from that on the road to Alabama and get in the right mindset for a top five SEC showdown? And I don't know what the answer is, but they figured it out because they go to Tuscaloosa, one of the toughest places to play in the country. They take the first two games and claim the series. And suddenly Florida is now again moving up in the standings and really starting to, to make a statement about what kind of team this is and where they can potentially go. Yeah, credit them for that bounce back because uh, that midweek game last week, uh, UCF was driving up to Gainesville and their bus broke down in Ocala. That's right, flat and, tire. And that's right, that's <laughs> right. And and Florida actually sent a bus down to help them and drive them up. And the uh, the thanks they get for that is a seven nothing beat down. Uh, they were down five nothing, I think, before they got the first out in the first inning. Mm. But then they go to Alabama, ranked number three in the country. And what do they do? You know, they they win a two nothing shutout on Friday night. And then Kendall Linneman hits a grand slam to break the game open. I think it was in the fifth or sixth inning in the Saturday game. So they take that series. So they've had five SEC series to date, Adam. They're five for five. They've won five series. They're right there. Uh, they're in second place behind Arkansas at 12 and three in the league. They got South Carolina coming in for a weekend series uh, in Gainesville this weekend. South Carolina, 23 and 17 overall, but two and 13 in the league. Um, Florida should have emerged, you know, unless some weird kind of stuff happens. Should be six to six for uh, SEC series, and as long as you keep piling series one on top of the other, and you look at um, eventually Florida, we'll see Arkansas not in the regular season. They're not on the regular season schedule, but uh, it's it's amazing though if you look at the schedule. So Arkansas has a bunch of sweeps and a handful of them, if not the majority of them. I don't have the schedule right in front of me, or against those teams in the in the bottom section of the conference standings right now, whereas Florida's been able to uh, beat Alabama in a series. Uh, beat LSU in a series. I uh, believe they beat Kentucky and Georgia in a series. So uh, South Carolina's next up. Not going to say it's a it's a breather, but they keep the momentum going. And like, like like I said, right now number three in the country and and playing pretty down well and 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 hitting the ball. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on right now. Obviously, in, in Gator sports, we've reached this is probably the the last moment of the season where it's as jam packed as it is now. Um, but even with all of that. We still have to look at what else is happening in the world. You guys know what that means. The Oscars are this weekend. That's where we're going for our PAT. And I know that we, we do lots of movies, so I, I have to be creative 
when I craft these PATs when they're movie related. But here's my question for you guys, because the, the knock on this year's uh, nominees, especially the, the eight best picture nominees, they're all downers. They're all too <laughs> sad. They're depressing. And I've seen all of them. And yes, a lot of them are. I won't disagree with that. But there is also greatness to be found sometimes in movies that are sad or maybe aren't feel good, but they're telling an impactful story, something that, that will, will enrich you. So my question for you guys is not what is your favorite movie, your favorite Oscar winner. I want to know the best movie you've ever seen that you don't need to see again, but that does not take away from the greatness of it. Well, I don't ever need to see No Country for Old Men again. Um, that's a good uh, one. Uh, you know, cause, and you could probably say the same thing about any Cormac McCarthy, uh, movie, <laughs> but it was, a a, a Cone brothers film, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously they, they do a bunch of good movies, but I'll tell you one impactful movie for me, that was something of a, certainly it's not a, an uplifting or feel good film of the year, but it, it is one I will watch again. And it's a little before your time, Adam. So, okay. uh, 1980 best picture year, ordinary people directed by uh, Robert Redford, actually, and he was actually not in the movie, uh, but it's uh, Donald Sutherland and it's Mary Tyler Moore as a very wealthy couple in a fancy suburb of Chicago, whose uh, youngest son, uh, Timothy Hutton, who's made is his first film, um, tries to commit suicide and fails. But he does it because he's tortured over having been witness to when he and his older brother were in a, a boat on a lake in a storm and the brother drowned and he survived. And it is an incredible uh, movie. Um, uh, Joel, uh, excuse me, Judd Hurst is the psychiatrist who has to treat um, uh, Timothy Hutton in this movie. And it's, it's fabulous. It, it won, it won best, best film. Um, and there's some other people in it who you, who you may recognize uh, from back in the day, again, it's a it's a forty year old film, mm-hmm. but it 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 is a really good movie. I believe it was a bestseller by Judith Guest, if I'm not mistaken. You feel better about it at the end. It's not this total downer film where you walk out just going, God, I think I'm going to kill myself, like No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, I, I love a great screenplay, and I love uh, I love great acting and filmmaking. And um, this is uh, to me, it's one of one of the classics. Certainly, one of my favorite movies ever. I was thinking No Country for Old Men. I, that was kind of on my list. But if if I had to say, I would say Million Dollar Baby, um, oh, oh, which God, is yeah. just incredible. And I don't want to say too much about it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But it's not a movie that you're going to be happy about when you leave. But that doesn't take away from just an, an incredible story and experience of watching it. So that's one that I recommend. If you haven't seen it, you're not going to want to. Fabulous movie. You're not going to pop it on TNT and watch it every, you know, like like Shawshank, for example. It's not rewatchable per se, but it doesn't mean it's not great. No, that you guys mentioned two great ones. Uh, no Country for Old Men, I have watched multiple times. I, I love the movie. I just love the pacing of it. It just kept me gripped. And then Million Dollar Baby, without question, is my number two one that I had on my head here as you asked the question. Uh, it made me want to punch that girl's family uh, <laughs> at the end. But, um, I mean, those are both great movies. But I think number one, and it's been this way, I, I, I saw this movie in a theater. It's an older movie. You were born, Adam. but And I'm sure you've seen it. It's a famous movie. But it's one that I remember walking out of the theater, which was a three-hour experience. And you just, man, that, that was 
it was the stuff I knew about. Obviously, it's part of world history, but I thought they did a great job. And that's Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. I mean, Steven Spielberg, uh, you know, about the Holocaust. And just if you haven't seen it, it's just you got to watch it once at least. That would be one that I've seen on Netflix and other streaming services. Uh, Maybe I can't sleep some night and I see it there and I'm like, almost click it. But then I realize I realize the investment that it takes in to watch the movie because of time. And -hmm. also it's like. You know, if I watched, it's not going to put me in a happy mood or. Good they mood. help. They help you at the end when they 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 bring back the actual they survivors the and and, yeah. and film that part in in the color in the color part at the end and and to give you some kind of a a, a reason to maybe I don't know maybe not watch the first two hours but maybe to stick yeah. around for those last. Yeah, it's five. been just, so long. It's been so long since I've seen it. Yeah, I thought I thought Adam was going to go with Godzilla and King Kong because no. that's that's <laughs> that's where his. That's where his mind usually is. No. Things forever. Schindler's List is a, a great choice on that. It's about their million dollar baby, Schindler's List, two of them that I'd probably think of first. Um, this was good. The, we've given people some very good recommendations here. If they want to venture into uh, into the, the, the journey of being a true cinephile. Um, so hopefully they, they take advantage of that. If, if, uh, if you want to see this year's Oscar nominees, most of them are on streaming services now. So you've got time to catch up and then you can, uh, you can tell us which ones are on your list after you see them. But, uh, that's, that's all we got for this week. This is, we, we had a, a quite a, a rundown this week of things going on. It's a lot for, for mid April. And of course, next week we'll have the draft and, and much more, but until then, uh, make sure to check these guys out on floridagators.com and on Twitter at Gators, Scott at Gators Chris uh, on the basketball stuff. Chris has in-depth articles about each of these new transfers and how they fit into the puzzle. So if you want to go deeper on that, that is another route you should go as well. Um, but until next week, we'll say goodbye for now. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Adam. And after that PAT, I'm going to get ready to go watch Super Bad. <laughs> I'm going to go watch the uh, Russian roulette scene of the Deer Hunter on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Some people don't have many options for where to take their lives and careers, and then there are those like Brian Shelton. With incredible talent on the tennis court and an engineering degree from Georgia Tech, Shelton could have gone a number of routes that wouldn't have led him to where he is today, taking a men's tennis program that was always good to being truly great. So to better understand what makes him tick and why he's been such a game changer at Florida, we asked him to take us back to the start of his journey. Yeah, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, so I'm a Southerner at heart. And uh, my dad was in the military, he's in the Army, and so I grew up on an Army base there in Huntsville, Alabama, Redstone Arsenal. And uh, two older brothers, an older sister, so yes, I was the baby of the family. And uh, with that came probably a few more privileges along the way. Uh, my parents were in a better position as as we went through to provide a little bit more for me than probably my brothers or my sister got. And they, they still remind me of that. Um, you know, grew up in a great city, um, got involved in all kinds of things, especially sports at a young age. And um, tennis was just one of those things that I kind of gravitated towards kind of by a fluke. Um, I was just passing some courts one day and, and I was probably eight years old and they were running some camps some tennis camps and one of the instructors saw me over there looking through the fence and said to come join and put a racket in my hand. And, you know, all of a sudden I started playing tennis and never looked back. And 
at the time I was probably 12 or 13 is when I really focused in on just, just tennis and, and left baseball and basketball and some of the other sports I was playing behind. And, um, you know, education was really important to my parents. And for us kids, it was really important to, to further that in college. And I was able to get a scholarship to Georgia Tech and studied engineering there. I was an industrial engineering major and, and went on and got my degree and played four years of tennis at the collegiate level. Um, so a lot of great opportunities um, there. From there, I went on and played professional tennis for almost 10 years and uh, got to travel the world, play all the grand slams, play all the, the best players in the world. And, you know, I just had an amazing experience as a player uh, before, you know, finally settling down afterward, retiring and, and getting married. Uh, my wife, Lisa, and I have two kids. Uh, my son, Benjamin, actually plays on my team now. He's a freshman. And my daughter is uh, a sophomore at the University of South Carolina. And she plays on the tennis team there. So uh, it's been nice because we're a tennis family. Uh, my wife um, comes from Indiana. Um, and her brother and I played professionally together and played some doubles together. We met it the first time at the Australian Open. So oh, wow. She understands the game really well. She grew up playing some tennis as well. Just didn't didn't pursue it in college. But you know, just been very blessed to, to have the opportunities to to do all the things that I've been able to do and be able to coach on the women's side at Georgia Tech and then the men's side at Florida. Um, it's been been really really just a blessing. Well, you just answered all my questions. So thanks for joining us today. <laughs> um, <laughs> If I could take you back, that was an incredible summation of your journey because it literally answered the first eight questions that I that I had for you based on Great. on my my research. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm I'm curious, what was it about ten? I mean, obviously, you know, it, it was a fluke, and you saw it. What was it that made you gravitate to tennis in the way that you ultimately did? I think ultimately, I was just super competitive as a kid, you know. And no matter what I did, I wanted to win. I mean, if I was playing ping pong with my dad. And I lost a game, we were going to play again. And we're going to play again and again and again and again until I won one. And Mm -hmm. um, so I think success was something that was always really important to me. And um, in the state of Alabama, I mean, no disrespect to Alabama, but football, basketball, baseball, those are the sports that were huge there. And tennis was, was a sport that in that state didn't get a lot of recognition. And so for me to pick up the sport, and then all of a sudden be within a year, be one of the best players in the state. I thought I was really doing something extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And later I found out that tennis was, wasn't that great in Alabama. <laughs> but I think I started pursuing it because I was having so much success with it. And, and as an individual sport, it was something that you know, I could take ownership of and, and really try to develop my own skill sets. And, and I kind of gravitated towards it. And uh, the people that were playing the sport, the families that were involved in it, I just saw so many benefits. And, you know, it just uh, it led me to to want to pursue it further. Um, in this town like Huntsville, where there's not a ton of junior players, I got to meet a lot of adults that played the game, and, and that was part of my development was playing matches and sets and things like that against adults. And some of the lawyers and doctors and, and professionals in town that played the game, I got to learn from, not just on the court, but kind of life in general. And so it was a great education for me. And it kind of really 
inspired me to want to further my education and, and continue to be successful both on and off the court. In, in terms of, I feel like I talked to a good number of athletes, coaches who come from a, a military background, and they seem to be wired almost a, a different way based on that experience. What oh, yeah. did coming from a military family do to you? How do you feel like that shaped your journey? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it's really what molded me into the person that I am. You know, the way my parents raised us, uh, my dad, obviously, you know, being an army guy, I mean, he was pretty militant <laughs> as far as how he, what his expectations were for everyone in the family, you know, discipline, uh, integrity, honesty, doing things the right way um, the first time, uh, learning from your mistakes and making sure you don't make the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, that was, that was beat into us a little bit. <laughs> and uh so for, for me, that, that's kind of how I'm wired. I just feel like if you want to get somewhere in life, you're going to have to work for it and you're going to have to form good habits. And so that really structured how I went about, you know, with uh, going about school and doing my schoolwork and, and making sure that I was organized and, and prepared. And, you know, my dad was also a, a scout master. And my, my brother really took to that. My oldest brother became an Eagle Scout. And wow. so learning from my, my siblings and how they went about things and my parents. And, you know, we were going to be the first generation of, of Shelton's to actually get a, a college degree. And so that was always so important to my parents that, that they put us um, in a place where we could go further than they went. And so we kind of took that responsibility on. I knew they made sacrifices for me to be able to play tennis because in the Army, you're not making a lot of money. And mm -hmm. so it was very rare for someone, you know, for parents like that to sacrifice so much of their income to allow me to go play tennis tournaments, to take lessons, to travel and do the things that I was able to do. And I understood that my mom was the one pushing for it and juggling things for us and, and for the kids in our family to be able to have those opportunities. And so when you know that as a kid, you, you take those opportunities seriously. You know, in terms of the education piece, because you mentioned that right off the bat in, in terms of how important it was, going to Georgia Tech to play tennis, I mean, may, maybe it's a little bit of both, but was tennis the vehicle to an education in your mind, or was it really about the tennis and college came along with that, or, or was it a little bit of both? Yeah, I think that, you know, for us growing up, education was the most important thing. And so for me the tennis actually provided me a way to be able to get out of Huntsville and see something different, um, to be able to go to a school like Georgia Tech. Um, I mean, that was, that was an incredible experience and opportunity. I mean, you're going to one of the top engineering schools in the nation. And then to be able to study industrial engineering, which was the number one program in the nation. I mean, wow. I felt like tennis really provided me the opportunity to be able to do that. Um, and so I kind of look at that, that they both kind of went hand in hand together. I think there are two sports that really go hand in hand. I mean, most players that, that pick up tennis, parents are usually educated and, and usually have, uh, have that as a priority. And then when the tennis goes well, that's certainly a bonus. And mm -hmm. for me, you know, like I said, they played hand in hand. Once I got to college, my, my end goal was to get the degree. Uh, and be successful there, but then to also be able to go on and play professionally afterward was was another goal. 
playing professionally, I mean, you had a chance to play on the, the biggest stages in the world, Wimbledon, Roland Garros, you mentioned the Australian Open. Um, when you think about your experiences as a pro, what stands out? I mean, there are matches or there are players you matched up with that you, you think about that obviously uh, our audience would know them, I'm sure. Absolutely. You know, those those moments, you know, growing up as a kid and watching tennis on television, I remember watching, you know, Arthur Ashe and, and Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and these guys, I mean, I looked up to like they were bigger than life. And to see them play at places like uh, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, I mean, ideally that's where I wanted to, to be and I aspired to get to that level. And uh, when I finally had my opportunity, I, I'll never forget my first experience at Wimbledon and uh, qualifying and had to win three matches in order to get into the main draw, which was played at the All England Lawn and Tennis Club. And so to get through the qualifying there and then see the draw come out and you're playing one of the top players in the world in Boris Becker in your first wow. at Wimbledon, I mean, that was that was larger than life. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my mom flew over, she was not going to miss that opportunity. Um, and so I got dusted pretty good. Um, <laughs> I was too nervous to be able to really play my best tennis on that day, but it was an experience I'll never forget. And then I ended up having a really good summer after that and ended up qualifying again at the U S open later that summer. And I won my first round match in the, in the main draw. And then I got a chance to play Jimmy Connors on stadium court at the U.S. Open at, at nighttime, you know, wow. 30 match under the lights. So have those experiences early in my career. The very first year out was amazing. Um, I lost in that match as well. But again, those are the things that after those two experiences, I was never too nervous to play good tennis again, you know, mm -hmm. because I'd been on the biggest stage. And so it prepared me for everything that was to follow afterward. And uh, at those points, I started really looking forward to those type of opportunities. I got a chance to play Agassi a couple of times, and I actually beat him in Miami at oh, wow. uh, what is now the Miami Open. Yeah. Back then, it was called the Lipton because they were the sponsor. Um, I got a chance to beat some other players that were top five in the world at the time. I got to play Pete Sampras a number of times. I got to play against some of the biggest names in the game, and and I was able to win a couple of titles on the ATP tour in singles and doubles. So uh, to have those type of experiences, to have some success, um, I think was great. But what I talk about a lot with our guys is the, the number of losses that I took and the adversity that I had to go through at different times and the low points of being out on the road multiple weeks and losing multiple times in a row and losing confidence and losing hard at times and continue to work hard, continue to push through, continue to battle, and, and eventually to start having success again. And that's, that's one of the toughest things in sports. When you lose that confidence, when you lose that edge, how do you deal with that? And so that happens to everybody at some point. And so for our guys on the team, it's, it's so easy for me to, to relate to them when they're struggling and they can relate to me because they know that I've been in the same situation that they're going through at this particular time. And so I share those experiences with them as well. And, and I'm glad that I had those opportunities to, to lose and to struggle and to mm -hmm. fail because it's maybe more empathetic and more aware when other people are going through it, uh, not to take those times and, and understand there's a way to get yourself out of that. And it's a process 
but it's a very important process because in life you're going to have ups and downs and you got to be able to handle both. Well, it's clear this is sort of setting the stage for your, your coaching career, learning these lessons and recognizing the importance of them. But when did the spark to coach come into your mind? I mean, was it you knew your, your playing time was wrapping up? It was a way to stay in the game? Was it a fluke? I mean, how did you, how did you become a coach? Yeah, that's a good question, Adam. I think that when I realized it was time to kind of put the rackets down for myself and time to settle down a little bit more and stop traveling so much, I thought I was going to get an education. You know, I thought I was going to be a teacher, whether it was at the high school level or junior high level, middle school, something like that. I thought I'd be teaching math somewhere. And um, it was not too long after I, I, I played the U.S. Open in 1997 that uh, I got a call from a guy named Tom Gullickson. Um, and he was actually working for the USTA. He was the director of coaching, which is our, our federation for tennis in the United States. And he asked if I'd be interested in coming on board and working with USTA with the top junior players in the world from the United States. And uh, I interviewed with him a couple of times and ended up accepting the position. You know, I thought, well, this is sort of education in a way. You know, I'll be working with young players and helping them in a pivotal time in their lives to develop the skills and the mindset and different things in order to become successful. And so, so I ended up doing that for a couple of years and I gained a ton of experience. You know, it was, it was very new to me. You know, I, I think I'd always been a student of the game. And even when I was playing the game, I would always watch matches and watch the top players and see what, what is it that makes them top five in the world, top 10 in the world, and really, really try to understand that for myself so that I could start to take some of those ideas that they had and, and implement them on my own game. And now to be able to share that information with young players and help them to understand that it's not just the technical skills that they need, but they also need the mental skills and the emotional skills to be able to handle adversity and be able to handle different situations that are going to come up in your tennis life and in life in general. And so those two years are really pivotal for me. I got to be around young players that were 15 and 16 year old year olds like Andy Roddick and Robbie Ginepri and Bobby Reynolds and, and on and on, both on the men's and women's side. And so that was very helpful uh, when I decided to, to, to leave the USTA and, and had the opportunity to come to Georgia Tech and coach there. Yes, yeah, so that next step, going to Georgia Tech and taking over the women's program, what were the challenges in building a program as opposed to just coaching players? What was the next step in terms of that plus building out the infrastructure of a, of a program? Well, I think it was just inexperience. That was the biggest challenge for me. It's just most coaches who get into collegiate coaching start as an assistant coach or a volunteer assistant coach. Right. And they start to learn the system and how things work and, and how to become a, a really good coach. And, and getting that job as a head coach, my very first coaching job in collegiate tennis, now I'm a head coach of a program. There are a lot of things I just wasn't equipped for, you know, mm -hmm. situations that are going to come up that have nothing to do with tennis. Sure. And so dealing with those situations was certainly a challenge, you know, um, because like I said, you're dealing with 18, 19 year olds that are trying to get adjusted to life without their parents to, to life on their own. And, and as, as a young person myself getting involved in coaching, 
you know, I've, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I've apologized many times to some of those kids that I had early on <laughs> those first couple of years <laughs> I was experimenting with. And, uh, you know, and through trial and error and making mistakes, you learn. And it's like what I always say is like try not to make the same mistakes twice. So, mm-hmm. so I made lots of mistakes but also learned a lot of things through those mistakes and how to work with people and how to get the best out of people and how to, how to be empathetic and how to, how to understand that every situation is different. And I think early on at Georgia Tech, I thought just the more hours we practice, the better we would be. Mm-hmm. And then I, I learned the law of diminishing returns. Was, you know, these guys are not just athletes, they're student athletes. And so you've got to balance it and understanding that they're students first and we want to make sure that they can be successful in the classroom. And how do you balance that with the athlete part and helping them understand that they have a responsibility to the team because they're part of something bigger than themselves. And how can they take care of that responsibility as well as take care of what they need to do in the classroom and, and balance that with the ability to have a social life and to experience other people and other things that are, that are available to them on campus. And so, uh, that was a process for me to figure that out, figure out that balance and how to structure the program in a way that everybody can develop as a person first and then as an athlete and student second and third. So it took some time, but fortunately, I had a lot of just great kids that came to Georgia Tech because they wanted to be pushed, they wanted to be challenged, they wanted to develop in a lot of different areas. And so it kind of went hand in hand with my own process, my own mindset. And so we were able to make improvements throughout my time there. And we kind of started on the bottom floor as far as tennis went. We were kind of last in the ACC at the time when I took over the program. And so it was fun going from the ground and building up from there. Um, It made it a little bit easier. So when you made mistakes, it didn't look like you're making (laughs) such huge mistakes. (laughs) Uh, because we were at the bottom. And so every success that we had, we felt like we were building something better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you obviously did something right because you went on to to win a national championship and had a ton of success there. Probably could have stayed there forever, right? It's your alma mater. You had a lot of success, but then you get a call from Jeremy Foley. And I'm curious how that went. How did you process the opportunity and, and what it could mean to make the jump that as we sit here today, you obviously made? Yeah, I think, you know, in life you get you only get a few opportunities sometimes to to really go after some things. And it's very unusual for someone to coach on the women's side to have the opportunity to then shift over to the men's side. They may want to, they may have a have have a desire to do that, but the opportunity is just not there. Mm-hmm. And um for me, you know, to to get uncomfortable again after getting comfortable at Georgia Tech with a program that we were running things were starting to run themselves after a while in a program. If you do things and set things up the right way, um, the players in the program teach the younger players that come in how to do things. And so we had it, we had it going pretty well and pretty smooth there at Georgia tech. So it was time to get uncomfortable. And, and so fortunately Jeremy called and uh, you know, I, I love Jeremy Foley. I think he's one of the best. And I tell him that all the time, you know, he just gave me a huge opportunity to be able to come to Florida, a place that in my opinion is the very best of, of everything. It combines the best academics with the best athletics and mm-hmm. in a great place, uh, in a great location. Um, so we've got the best of the best. We've got the best coaches in the league, uh, best coaches in the nation, really, in all of our sports. 
And so to be able to rub shoulders with the very best and learn from them, to be able to be on a campus with Olympic athletes that are doing things that are just amazing, whether it's in the swimming pool, on the track or wherever, mm -hmm. um, it was just a great opportunity for, for me and for my family to come to somewhere that really is, is like I said, the very elite and, and see what we could do there. In terms of the, the building, you talked about, you know, the need to become uncomfortable again. When you started at Florida, was it the same process as building at Georgia Tech or were there differences between the, the ascension of the two programs? I think there's, there's more similarities than the, than the latter. I think that the things that are important are the building the character in the program um, and really the culture of the program. And you hear those words thrown out a lot today, don't you? And, you know, but those are the essential things if you want to build something that's going to be sustainable. You know, I think you can bring in talent, but talent leaves after three or four years, you know. And so what you want to bring in is, is character. And, you know, I can see it when we're recruiting these, these players. I can see it with how they relate to their family, how they relate to their parents. That tells a big part of the story right there. Right. And to, to get in quality people that I know that are going to respect um, one another, they're going to respect the opportunity, they're going to respect the, the resources that they have and, and try to make the most of it. Those are the type of players and people that we want to continue to bring into the program. And it's not just the players, it's the staff that we bring in as well. The, the things that are most important, that's, that's what I want to always get down to. What's the root? You know, what's the right. most important thing? And if you can get those things right, the tennis will eventually get there, you know? And mm -hmm. so for, for us, I think there, there's so many similarities to how we did it at Georgia Tech, which is really make sure that you place the most importance on, you know, integrity, honesty, um, being on time, taking care of the details, making the place better than you left it. Um, just all the little things that add up to make something, you know, special. And so uh, hitting forehands and backhands and serves, we'll get to that, you know, yeah. but make sure that we get to the foundation first, set that up, and then the rest will follow. Hmm. A couple of final things for you. As we sit here today, you're the number one team in the country. And when Jeremy Foley hired you, he's, you know, it was a, a sweet 16, like a top 16 program. And he said, I think we can do better. Yeah. You've obviously done that. You're, you know, you're at the point you've been trying to get to was there a turning point where there are multiple moments you can look at and say, that's how we got to being here today uh, near where we want to, where we want the, the journey to end? I think it's, it's a progression. You know, I don't, I can't look at one certain point, but those first couple of classes of recruits that we brought in, they were the right type of guys. You know, we brought in this kid, Diego Hidalgo, Max Lippman, Elliot Orkin, Josh Wardell, those are, those are my early classes that came in, you know, they had those intangible things that we were looking for, those attributes that we wanted to build the program around, the character pieces. And as we continue to bring those type of student athletes into the program, things just continue to build from there because, you know, Scott Strickland will tell you, you know, you've got to have the horses. You've got to have the <laughs> right type of horses in there. Um, uh, that are going to set the tone for the whole program. And we were able to do that early on, um, get the right type of guys in the program. And then we just continue to build. It's been a steady progress. 
Jeremy Foley calls me the tortoise, you know, <laughs> here, Brian, you're the tortoise. You just keep plodding along, you know, yeah. consistently just keep being that guy, you know, that's just going to continue to push this thing steady and slow and, and push it forward. And, and that's the way you sustain success success. And so I think that that's been kind of our motto is just like, stay hungry, be humble, keep working, let the people around you know that you value them and continue to value the right things. If you continue to do that and do that well, then the success will follow. And so we try not to get too wrapped up in the wins and losses of each day, but making sure that we're enjoying the journey along the way, building relationships with one another has got to be more important than just winning the matches because at the end of the day, you'll forget some of these wins and losses, but the relationships you build, hopefully will be there the rest of your life. Hmm. Uh, in terms of where you guys are at now, you know, this is the time of year where the casual fan realizes, oh man, we're, we're getting to postseason, right? We're about to enter tennis's postseason. As we talked today, you're at the SEC tournament, and I mentioned being at the top. You got the number one ranking, but you want the titles that, that come with that. So for fans that are just now getting turned on to your program and what you guys are doing, uh, tell us about your team. Tell us where you are as, as you enter this this critical stretch. Yeah, it's been a it's been a great season for us. You know, I think that this group that we have assembled, starting with uh, Duarte Valle and Sam Riffis, those are our two captains. They play number one and two singles for us, and they have the entire season for the most part. Um, it starts there with them. Uh, they lead by example. They're super, super competitive. They won't lose in anything that they do. Mm -hmm. But they set the example with their work ethic. You know, they come out extra all the time. And so for the young guys, they've got a great, great leadership group in those two to, to, to lean on and to look to for advice. And those guys, like I said, they do it by example. And And I think what makes our team special is that from one to 10, like we have six players that play singles and six guys that play doubles, but we have 10 guys on this team. And from one to 10, we're, we're tough all the way through. So every practice, every training session, we're pushing each other hard. And so I think that's what's sharpened our, our, our competitive spirit and, and our, our skill sets as well. And so we've been able to have some success throughout this season, and we've been pretty consistent with that, partially because of our depth. Um, I think that we're really strong at the top of the lineup, but we're really strong all the way through. If someone were to get knock on wood, if we had an injury or if we had someone that was sick, we're so confident in anyone that comes back into the lineup. Right now, Lucas Greif is he's not in the singles lineup right now. And, I mean, this guy, he's ready to go. I mean, every day at practice, you look at this guy play and compete against our other guys and – the guy is ready to play. He's playing so well. He's doing so many good things. So if the opportunity presents itself, I know without a doubt this guy is ready to go. And we've got several others right behind him that are ready to go as well. Um, so I think that's what makes us pretty special and dynamic. And I think we're really confident in what we can do and what we bring. And I think it's, it's important that we're not just relying on playing well. We're relying on competing hard and solving problems out there on the court. And when you have that mindset, you're not just hoping, you know, you know that there's some things that you can control. And if you control those things really, really well, then your chances of success go way up. So as a group, as a team, that's our mentality. 
and I think that's a mentality that you can you can find ways to win even on the days that you're not playing well. Well, Coach Shelton, we know that Gator Nation is watching closely now and rooting for you guys to to bring home not just an SEC title, but hopefully a national championship as well in due time, in due time. Um, <laughs> but uh, good luck the rest of the way, and, and thank you so much for joining us today. All right, Adam, appreciate you. Thanks again. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Stay up to date on everything going on with the orange and blue at FloridaGators.com, and we'll be back next Thursday with an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Please stay safe and go Gators.